All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit uh, this morning. Very um, different uh, than a lot of things, you know, when we're here on uh, Sunday mornings. But again, I want to say Happy New Year. Um, started kind of groundhog-ish with, you know, here we go again, kind of with this COVID deal. But thankfully, it seems like the groundhog's not coughing as much this time. And we pray it would continue that way. But Happy New Year 2022. Um, in my family, it's going to be a big uh, year corporately as a church. We will celebrate um, 14 years of being a church this coming spring. And just personally, this year, Sarah and I will celebrate 20 years of marriage. Our youngest will turn double digits. Can you believe that? Um, our third will become a teenager. Our Second born will get her learner's permit, and our oldest will begin her senior year of high school. So it is crazy big year in our family. Um, and Lee, you know, was praying there right in line with what way I was kind of going to begin this morning, is that just as God's mercies are new every single morning, as you turn the page of a new year, there's a sensed newness in the year. Like the, just turning that page, the, the calendar brings that along us. And so a lot of people will make New Year's resolutions, you know, for the year. And so there's going to, you know, it's a new year. There's going to be a new me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get in the word more. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to read through the Bible. I'm going to, I'm going to lose a few pounds. I'm going to gain a few pounds. I'm going to, um, you know, start this new thing. I'm going to kick this habit, this, this addiction that I've had finally and fully. I'm going to get past that. And so many of us have, have done that. And, and that's great. And even while we do want to forget the, 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 you know, what lies behind and we forge ahead, we don't forget in the sense of like absolute, like it's gone from our mind. It's just that's not our focus anymore. We are looking forward. But we don't forget. We remember God's faithfulness. Like, I hope... Today, or maybe already, you have looked back across 2021 and seen God's faithfulness in your life, and then you're pivoting to 2022 and what maybe God wants to do in your life. And as we do that as a church, you know, at the end of the year, kind of a, uh, looking at you know, what, what's taking place in the church this year, we have a lot to be thankful for in 2021. By God's grace, we are a healthier church today than we were at, on this day a year ago. We've seen several people come to faith. We've added three dozen people to the church. You guys gave like crazy to this offering. We met our budget. We built a permeable parking lot with cash. Like You guys did this. The food pantry has served our community more than any way. We have given more to missions than we ever have. There's a lot of good stuff. We are continuing to grow in understanding the gift and the necessity that it is to be part of a church. And so the train is going in the right direction. Like we, we don't need a new train. We don't need a new direction. The train is going in the right direction. The trajectory is great. Our mission of worshiping and enjoying God and leading others to do the same is happening. Our strategies of gathering, growing, serving, and going, they're keeping us focused, they're keeping us on mission. And so those things are all good, right? They need to continue. But as I look at our church and just kind of think about, you know, what are some areas, some opportunities for us? One area I think that we can grow in, and I'm excited because we, we can grow in this, 
It's culture. Culture. Not that it's bad, not that our culture is bad at all. In fact, it's really, really, really good. But there's more. It's just not complete. There's, there's more to it. And I know that we won't ever finally and fully get to perfection in this world, both individually, as a church, as a family, whatever. But like Pastor Chad is constantly talking to the students about progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection. So we want to make progress. And so what I'd like to do today, a little bit of a different type of sermon, almost kind of a state of the union type deal, is I want to talk about that a little bit. What I hope to see take root in our church over the years to come, and what that is, is a growing gospel culture. A growing gospel culture. And this is distinguished from like strategies and core values and that sort of thing. Culture is just the way you live it. Like it's the ethos. It's the feel. Like you can feel the culture of a home when you walk in it. This is a culture or this is a home of harshness. This is a home of grace. You can feel that. What is the feel of our church? What is the DNA? What's in the water? That's the difference in culture and strategy. That's why... Peter Drucker famously said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Like strategy is just an idea. Culture is the embodiment of it. And every organization, every person, every church has a culture. So let me try to keep unpacking this and help you understand it by talking again about New Year's resolutions. All right. Many of you did that. You said New Year's resolution. All right. And that's great. Those are goals. Okay. You have a goal. You want to see this happen. Maybe you want to read, read through the Bible. And so then you have to have a strategy. Well, how am I going to do that? So you start searching out reading plans. Maybe you got a Robert Murray McShane one or you got some off ESV or whatever. So you have a strategy. I'm, here's how I'm going to read through the Bible. And then over the long haul, that's the emphasis, the long haul, whether you do it or don't do it, you're setting a culture. And so like if over the long haul, you know, If you don't do it just by default, you are setting a culture of like not reading the Bible. Or if you do it over the long haul, you have set a culture personally of reading the Bible. And so culture can happen by inactivity and just default. That's why every church, every person, whether they've ever thought about it or not, has a culture. But culture can also be shaped by conscious effort until it becomes... The air you breathe, it's just habit, it's just culture, it's just the way it is. Like that's how culture works. It forms extremely slowly, but then once it's set, it affects everything. And so like when I think about culture here at Providence, what is a defining aspect of Providence? One of the most obvious is our emphasis on expository preaching, which is ironic because I'm not doing that at all today. But that's the norm. That's what we do day, week in, week out. We just go through the Word. We seek to see, you know, read it, explain it, illustrate it, apply it, go home, right? That's what we seek to do. So we're very Word-centric, very, he- very heavy. And that emphasis on expository preaching affects everything that we do. It flows into everything that we do. And it, and it formed slowly. We made a decision to do it, but it was like, is this going to work? Are we going to stick with this? You know, way back when? And now it's just, it's just, we wouldn't do anything. It's the culture. It's just the air we breathe. 
And so I want to talk this morning about three areas of a growing culture that a, a growing gospel culture that I think we can grow in, we need to grow in. And by, by, by God's grace, some of it's already happening, but we just want to see it furthered. And so you can go ahead and fill them in in your uh, sermon guide if you want. This is what they are. A culture of discipleship. A culture of grace. And a culture of evangelism. Nothing new. But a culture of discipleship, a culture of grace, and a culture of evangelism. And so we'll chat just a little bit about each one of them. And so number one, again, a culture of discipleship. Now just definitionally, discipleship, what is that? Well, what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. A follower of someone. So you have, you know, people who are followers of Gandhi, followers of Mohammed. You have people who are followers of um, celebrities, uh, followers of a political ideology, all of these different kinds of followers. They are disciples of these people. As Christians, obviously, we are to be disciples of Jesus. We are to follow him, both in what he teaches and in how he calls us to live. We are to be followers of him. And so Jesus says to us, Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Like that is what a disciple is. It is a follower of Jesus. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so when we talk about discipleship, we are talking about following Jesus. Like that ongoing every single day from the cradle to the grave, ever increasingly learning to follow Jesus. And that word learning is huge there. Following Jesus must be learned. It doesn't come naturally. Sin comes naturally. Not following Jesus comes naturally. Following Jesus must be learned. It must be taught. It must be modeled. And that's what discipleship is all about at its heart. And so we are to always be continuously growing, learning, being poured into. And God's chosen vehicle of discipleship is the church. He created it for this and many other things. And so discipleship begins by gathering together. Like a huge aspect of, of, of being a disciple is what we're doing right now. And that's why Hebrews 10, 24 it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the goal here is to follow Christ, to help one another follow Christ, to stir one another up to love and good works. And how does the author say that that's accomplished? It's accomplished by not forsaking the assembling of yourselves, i.e. it's accomplished by gathering. Now, one of the primary ways we encourage one another, we stir one another up, is by gathering together regularly, repeatedly. And this gives shape to following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus. And actually, I think we're doing pretty good at this. I I know this morning we're not all here, most of us are at home. Next week, hopefully, that'll be the same. And, and, and once things, I'll just, an aside real quick, once things get back to, you know, 
uh, more normal levels or whatever, and we get grow more comfortable being around people. Live streamers, live stream is for times like this where we can't be together. It's not for just enjoying being in your pajamas and not getting up and coming and gathering. Like gathering means gathering, not just watching. We're glad we have live stream. I'm glad that we have it today. But normally, gathering means gathering, being here, being together. But I think all, overall, we're doing pretty good with this one. We have a good culture of gathering. At this moment, week by week, is a gift and a necessity as we sojourn in a strange land until the Lord brings us home to heaven. And so hugely important, it's hugely important, I think, we're developing a good culture of gathering. But, sitting in here, listening to the Word, singing the Word, praying the Word, reading the Word, and seeing the Word displayed through the Lord's Supper and baptism is not the only form of discipleship. Like when you think about discipleship, you can really kind of think of it as like golf clubs. In your golf bag, there are three major kind of clubs. You have wood, you have irons, and then you have a putter. And so applying that to discipleship, like this moment, this is the driver, okay? And everybody wants to be able to hit the driver super well. That's why when you go to top golf, people are just swinging away. Who cares if it goes in the, in the goal or whatnot? They're just, can I get it to the back of the net? Everybody wants to hit the driver, and the driver is huge. I mean, if you play golf, it can save a ton of strokes if you can hit it long and straight. Preferably, or emphasis on straight. And so you save a ton of strokes. And so this moment, this is like the driver. This is the, this is the woods. You can cover a lot of ground here with a lot of people helping to form and you know develop spiritual formation in people in a big way. That's why Hebrews commands, not suggests, but commands gathering together. A lot can happen with the driver, with the woods. But then you also have irons. And so if you're not super familiar with irons, irons require, like, finesse. You've got to be able to control that. A lot of accuracy, a lot of work. And so irons are kind of like classrooms, community groups, where you get feedback, you get dialogue. But then, then you have the putter. And the putter's personal. The putter's the one, like, if you're a bad golfer like me, you ignore. And probably in discipleship, that's the one that we ignore as well. The personal, the one-on-one, the smaller groups. Women's groups, some of you are involved in them. Men's groups, some of you are involved in them. And it's this club, this personal putter-level discipleship, that I want to see us grow in as a church. Until it just, I mean, I think it can blossom in our church until it becomes truly just a culture, just a habit, a lifestyle of being in each other's lives continuously. Businessmen learning to, uh, learning who works around them in their area of Nashville or Cool Springs or Murfreesboro or whatever they may be doing or at home. And regularly seeking out other people who work in those areas to have lunch, to encourage one another. Same thing with college students on your campuses, church members that are there, high school students, folks who are at home, retirees. Doing the same, just organically, just pursuing this. But there will be some formal aspects of it, and that's good and right. Like the men in my community group. We're starting a book study through a book called Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners uh, on January the 11th. 
um, be meeting at Mama's Java. Everybody who's in, all the guys that are in uh, my community group will be doing that together. But that formality is there just to foster and eventually give way to just a, a culture of putter-level discipleship where deep conversation is normative, not awkward. Where pouring into and being poured into by others is desired and invited. We're being willing to tell embarrassing things about yourself and ask awkward questions of others where needed happens. Where we are involved in one another's lives, marriages, sin struggles, burdens, desires, failures, frustrations, fears, depression, and joys. Where we are encouraging one another with Scripture, like a crowd at a marathon. Come on. You can do this. With God's help, you, you can do this. This is the culture of discipleship I'm talking about. Because we're not called to do this life alone. God never meant for you to. We need one another. We need people around us who can help us see the deceitfulness of sin that we are so often blind to and can help us see the kindness of God that we're so often blind to. The grace of God. The work of God. The wonder of God. And in order for this kind of culture of discipleship to happen, we have to have an ever-increasing, number two, culture of grace. A culture of grace. I mean, when you talk about gospel culture, this has to be one of the most obvious ones. When you think about the gospel, when you think about Jesus, like grace should be one of the biggest things we think about. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so everybody just, at the start of the new year, look at me right in the face, camera. You are so unbelievably loved by God, and you have done nothing to deserve it. You have done nothing to earn it. And he's smitten with you. That's grace. No earning. No deserving. And yet lavished. And our relationship with Christ, it starts by grace through faith and his life, death and resurrection. But then it's ongoingly kept by grace. It's not like, well, I got grace and I'm in and now I need to perform to stay in. No, you were saved by grace. You are kept by grace. It is all of grace from beginning to end. Like the idea of an unbroken upward spiral of growth in holiness until you go home to be with Jesus is a myth. And if that's your understanding, it's going to lead to, I mean, harm. Like that's, It's not going to happen that way. We still live in the flesh. 
we will still struggle with sin. Some of it visibly blatant wickedness and some of it invisibly self-righteousness. Well, at least I don't do that. And so in our fallen yet forgiven full humanity, we go slipping and sliding, progressing and regressing, following and falling, doubting, stumbling forward. And as we do, God keeps giving us grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. And we, we accept this idea of, like I, I, I've been having this mental battle all week with, with what I'm about to say. We accept the idea of, you know, the great reformational creed. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like we accept that. But do, do we really, really believe it? Do we really, really believe that we are saved and kept by grace alone? Because if we do, we have to accept this statement that makes us uncomfortable. We're like, are we getting antinomian? But we do have to understand and accept this statement. If we are saved and kept by grace alone, that means that God loves us no matter what we do. That doesn't mean, you know, go and sin more, that grace may abound all the more. That's clear. Paul in Romans 6, by no means. But it does mean, if we are saved by grace alone, not deserved, not earned. And that should be freeing to you, not so that you can go and sin, but so that you can be freed from the shackles. Of sin and guilt and shame. And so as we stumble forward, God keeps giving us grace upon grace because that's who He is. He is not an old, benign spectator in the stands who cheers for you when you show up for your quiet time and frowns when you don't. That's not who He is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the love that He so had that caused Him to send Jesus into the world to save sinners is the love He still has for those sinners that He sent Jesus to save. For you and me. He still so loves the world. He still so loves you. As I read this week, Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. And once we receive that, He does not then throw a yoke of performance on us. No, Matthew 11. Instead, He says to us, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, so there is one, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is good news. Jesus is grace 
full. He is full of grace. And he calls us to be likewise. And we see this all over the Bible, that God is a God of grace. We just don't believe it. Like, yeah, I believe it in God's grace. But bringing it down into, like, from here to our hearts, that God treats us with grace is all over the Scripture. I mean, when we look at uh, Isaiah 55, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But a lot of times we read this and we use these verses often to explain God's mysterious providential work in the world. And so we'll rattle off, you know, well, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But actually, when you look at the passage, what He's talking about is that His grace and His mercy and His compassion is just so other than us. And so Isaiah 55 verse 1 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, come to me because I'm not like you. My ways are not your ways. From my heart comes compassion, comes pardon, comes gentleness, not harshness. I mean, we went through Exodus, we've been in Hebrews, and we've pointed out several times, but let's see if anybody listens. What is the most repeated Bible verse in all of the Bible? What is the most quoted passage of Scripture in the Bible itself? All right, maybe you'll remember it this time. Exodus 34, 6. It is the most quoted passage of Scripture. I mean, dozens of times in the Bible. And here's what it says. It is God defining himself to Moses on the mountain. And it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so as we pointed out last, well, several weeks ago, notice the asymmetry of that passage. It is not a scale of wrath and grace. It is way, let's see, I guess it would be this way, way weighted on the grace and compassion. When God defines Himself, hey, most important thing about me, you need to know about me, Moses, first of all, is I am gracious, I am merciful, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in steadfast love, I forgive sins and iniquity to the thousands, and yes, I do have wrath for sin, But this is what you need to know about me. Asymmetry of it. 
And so there's, I mean, there's no denial that, 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 that God has wrath against sin in here. But it's like a tack-on at the end of this asymmetrical passage. And so thinking about this over the last few weeks, over the last few days, as we're getting ready to turn into a new year, just personally, for me as a father, as a dad, <clears throat> I recognize I reverse this a lot. I absolutely flip-flop this thing. I don't lead with grace and mercy. I lead with wrath. I lead with, what's the sin you did? And I focus on it, and I drill down on it. And I'm not slow to anger. Way too often, I go way too fast from zero to 60 in anger. But God's not like that with me. Why am I like that with somebody else? Why am I like that with my kids? I'm not being a very good disciple not being a very good follower of Jesus in those moments. And so one of the things that I am personally trying to practice this new year is to give ten encouragements to my kids for every one rebuke that I give them. Now, I need to rebuke them. Like, I wouldn't be a very good follower of Jesus if I didn't do that. I need to correct them. I am a parent. I am to train them up in the way they should go. But I am to encourage them as well. I'm to lead. Like they need, first of all, a father who lead, who reflects the father and leads with compassion and mercy. Being slow to anger. Not the inverse that I all too often am. And as a church, in a church, in a culture of discipleship, if we are going to get to a place where we are going to be vulnerable with one another and be involved and help one another and point things out to one another, that vulnerability has to be met similarly. Not first of all with a culture of rebuke, but a culture of grace and encouragement. A culture of the crowd at the marathon. Come on, come on, come on. For the very act of vulnerability and confession is a sign of repentance. And nowhere in Scripture do you find genuine repentance met with rebuke. You find it met with an embrace and a John 8-like whisper from Jesus. You're not condemned. You're accepted. Go. And from now on, don't sin anymore. Friends, may this grace-filled, honest ethos of ever-increasingly, like may it ever-increasingly be the culture here and in our homes. And it doesn't start with that other person that you're thinking about living this way. It starts with you living this way. You being a fount of encouragement to those around you. Because... The reality is this, the world beats us up plenty. Sin beats us up. And then the shame of that sin beats us up. As a church, let's build one another up. 
with a culture of grace that says, you're not condemned, you're accepted, keep going, and sin no more. And then who wouldn't want that? And then who wouldn't want to give that away to others? Which takes us to the third one. A culture of evangelism. If you've been forgiven by grace through faith in Christ's life, death, resurrection. Scot-free. You didn't do anything. You don't earn it. You didn't. You did not earn it. You don't keep it by performance. It's just given to you. I mean, it, that's why it's good news. And evangelism is something we know we should do. It's just something that we don't regularly do. And I want to be honest because I don't want to just heap guilt on us this morning at all. So the honesty is that I realize the pandemic did play into a lack of evangelism in some ways. It's just that that's over now. It's time to get back in being engaged regularly in seeking to lead people to Christ. And so add that to your prayer life. Add this. Lord, show me the opportunities you're giving me. Because He's giving them. It's just we don't recognize them a lot of times. Show me the opportunities you're giving me. And remember that success in evangelism isn't necessarily seeing people repent and believe and trust Jesus. Like that's what we hope to happen. Yes, absolutely. But success, you having success in evangelism is just Doing it. Sharing the gospel lovingly. I mean like UPS, right? Success for them is just delivering the package properly. It's not up to them. They are not responsible for what the recipient does with the package. They're just responsible to deliver the package. And that's the case with evangelism. We're just responsible to deliver the package. The Holy Spirit is the one who saves. Not us, not our eloquence, not how we deliver it. All we're called is to deliver it. And so as I heard it put one time, sharing the gospel is like walking around in a thunderstorm, handing out lightning rods. You don't know when the lightning will strike, Or who it will strike. But you know that it will strike. And you know what it will strike. The lightning rod of the gospel. And when it does, that person's lightning rod will be charged with the power of God. And he or she will believe. I mean, the reason we can have confidence in evangelism. We know that evangelism will ultimately work. Is because God, before the foundations of the earth, decided that he was going to save certain people. We don't know who those people are, so we broadcast, spread the gospel, trust the Holy Spirit, and to regenerate hearts and give them the faith to believe. And so friends, just share. Just read the Bible with somebody. Go through the Gospel of Mark with someone. Because God wants to save people. He so loved the world that He gave Jesus, and He still so loves the world. And so let's be his mouthpiece. Let's herald good news. Let's herald grace. Let's herald freedom. Let's herald captives set free. Let's herald amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then even as we talked about this morning, and now holds on to a ragamuffin like me.
And so a culture of discipleship, a culture of grace, a culture of evangelism, 2022 and beyond, here and in your homes, in all of these ways, let's grow a gospel culture continually. Let's pray. Lord, I don't think we can ever fully comprehend or get past the humbling yet life-giving truth that You are merciful and gracious. That you are slow to anger. That you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Father, would that truth so invigorate our souls at a deep, profound level that it not only would be something that we meditate and remind ourselves of in the mess of our own lives, but it would spill over into a culture of being people who are merciful and gracious, who are slow to anger, who are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Would you cause that to grow in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives? In our church. In our spheres of influence, Lord. That when people see us, they do see Christ. Not a caricature, not a false witness, or a false Christ, but the real deal. And Father, we pray for you to do this because we can't do this on our own. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps enough. We can only do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Spirit, please... Fill us. And let us together ongoingly stir one another up towards faith and good works to the praise of your glorious grace and the good of our own lives and the world around us that you so love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.